Welcome, teacher friend. I'm Lori. And I'm Melissa. We are two literacy educators in Baltimore. We want the best for all kids, and we know you do too. Our district recently adopted a new literacy curriculum, which meant a lot of change for everyone. Lori and I can't wait to keep learning about literacy with you today. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Literacy Podcast. Melissa and Lori love literacy. We are very excited for today's guest because he's a rock star. He wrote an incredible piece that caught um, our eye for the 74, and we knew we had to have him on to talk with him. Uh, So, Melissa, I know you're excited because we've talked a lot about this piece without Alex, but (laughs) I know we're excited (laughs) to talk with him. (laughs) Absolutely. You know, I mean, I think we often, Lori, we're, we're, we know so many places that have adopted high quality instructional materials, but I, we forget sometimes just how many haven't. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, we're in our own little world and it was nice, a nice little reminder from Alex in his article on the 74 that was like, yes, this is so important. And we <laughs> need to remind people that how important it is. So yeah, I'm excited to talk to Alex about that today. Yeah, this is a big opportunity. So at, at this point in time, so I'm I can't wait to hear what he has to say. Um, Just to give a little brief bio, Alex Spurrier, who is on our podcast today, he's a senior analyst with the Bellwether Education Partners. He's in the policy and evaluation practice area, which sounds very fancy. So Alex, welcome to the podcast. (laughs) Thank you so much for having me. Excited to be here. Yeah. Um, Will you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got into this? And then we'll jump into the piece because we want, and, and we'll link the piece so everybody who's listening can read it too. Sure, happy to. As you mentioned, I, I work at Bellwether Education Partners as a senior analyst. Uh, we're a national nonprofit focused on dramatically improving outcomes for underserved students. And so we work with a, a wide range of organizations from school operators to foundations to state departments of education to help them uh, improve either how they're serving kids uh, directly or to improve policy. And so that that's really what uh, kind of helped me spark the idea for this article. I've had some previous experience working in state government here in Kentucky, where I'm based. I worked at our State Department of Education and our longitudinal data system. I've also had other experience uh, working in education policy at the state level in some advocacy roles uh, prior to joining Bellwether. And so as we're thinking about, you know, infrastructure being discussed in a very large context and thinking about the definition of infrastructure being stretched for a lot of folks beyond what they might have considered um, being incorporated in infrastructure. Um, it, it got me thinking about educational infrastructure. And while, you know, on the federal level, with uh, infrastructure being considered for K-12 schools, probably going to focus on expanding broadband access or uh, upgrading HVAC systems in school buildings. I wanted to think more about what kind of edu- or in- instructional infrastructure could look like. And for me, it, that really gets down to high-quality curriculum. And that really was the, the genesis of the piece and, and why we're all talking here this morning. Yeah, for sure. I think it's such a... It's something that we talk about all the time, obviously, but it's it was refreshing to hear your take on it as building that strong foundation for students and, you know, especially underserved students, but all students, really. You know, I mean, I think, mm-hmm. um, you know, all students can benefit from this. So I would love to go a little bit deeper into the piece because I there are some really interesting statistics and noteworthy statistics and, and just considerations that I think we could talk about. Um, So I'm going to share a little piece um, that you put in your report, and then I'd love to hear you talk about it a little bit. 
um, that only 7% of English language arts teachers in elementary schools report regular use of high quality instructional materials. And even if schools do adopt high quality materials, they rarely, rarely equip teachers to use those resources. So in that little bit, I'm hearing that, you know, 7% is not that much. And especially when we think about the reach for our students, um, mm -hmm. I think that's, that's staggering. And then if they do adopt the materials, they are likely to not get the professional development to go along with that. And I can say from a great minds perspective that that is 100% true there. I think, I think the statistic is I'll go check too, that it's 15% of uh, those who adopt high quality materials end up purchasing additional um, professional development to support. So that's not, those numbers aren't very <laughs> encouraging. <laughs> so talk to us about Yeah, that. I mean, it, 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 they're pretty shocking numbers. And what makes it even more, uh, I don't know, either discouraging, if you want to look at it negatively, or as an opportunity, because there's so much room for improvement, like curriculum is something that is wholly within the control of schools, districts, and can be influenced by state uh, education leaders, uh, both in SEAs and policymakers. And mm -hmm. so like, we, we can improve this. But to the point you made earlier, there's so little support, even when we do have high quality curriculum adopted by schools, there's so little support for educators right now to actually implement it well. So there, uh, there's also data that show teachers only receive an average of one day a year of curriculum aligned professional development, uh, which crazy. certainly <laughs> is, is not enough to, to do a thoughtful um, ongoing professional development tied to your curriculum. One day is not going to cut it. And we no. see the, the kind of knock on effects of that in the time use data that we have of teachers that shows the average teacher spends over 12 hours a week searching for or creating supplementary materials to use for instruction. And that just is a giant red flag that we have to be able to address. And we can address, but it, it's it's something where, you know, right now there's such a burden on individual educators that is created by the lack of support for or even adoption of high quality instructional materials. And that, that's why I argue in my piece that using some of the, the federal stimulus money to adopt and support high quality instructional materials and, and really well-structured curricula is something that we kind of have to do as a, a, a baseline before we can start thinking about other strategies to, to help students move forward after the, the year that we've had. Yeah, Alex, I loved that. Um, I mean, the title of your piece here is Curriculum is an infra Infrastructure, but states should treat it as such. And it's longer than that, but that's all I got right here. <laughs> And build a strong foundation for student learning. There it is. <laughs> um, and I think you've already touched on it, right? Like why we should be talking about it like it's infrastructure. But I'm just wondering if you can tell us a little more about like how, why you compared curriculum to or why you said it should be like infrastructure. Where did that come from? Well, when we visit schools that have curriculum at the center of their operations, you really see a difference in everything that the school does, how teachers interact with students, how teachers interact with one another, how teachers interact with administrators, and, and how all of the operations within a school can really be tied to the, a thoughtful, well-structured curricula. And you contrast that with other schools you might visit where that's not the case. And it's a lot more difficult to have that coherence within a school building between 
classroom to classroom, grade level to grade level, uh, department to department. And so I think having a, a well-thought-out, high-quality curriculum really can serve as a foundation for so many different aspects that can elevate the, the quality, coherence of instruction that occurs within a building. And so once you have a high-quality curriculum, you can then start to align professional development with the actual content of your curriculum so that your grade-level educators or subject-level educators are focusing more on becoming experts in instructing the content they're delivering rather than learning general strategies that may or may not help them in their specific context with the content they're trying to teach their students. Um, it can also stretch beyond the walls of a classroom and get into our, our teacher preparation programs and institutions so that as educators are, are working pre-service, they're starting to be exposed to and understand the curriculum that are being used in the schools that they're likely going to be going on to serve. Because we know that most teacher preparation programs are, are talent pipelines for a, a relatively small number of districts. And so if we started to see some alignment between preparation programs and districts in terms of the curricula that they're focusing on, uh, it could really lead to some really positive um, effects for, for both uh educators and students. Yeah. And I do want to speak to one thing that you said you, you shared, um, like teachers could be getting professional development on the curriculum that they're using and, and, you know, obviously it would be much more meaningful than just for probably, I mean, and I was a teacher for a decade for year after year PD on strategies and you're killing yourself teaching these strategies that then aren't working. Um, and obviously, because the research says you should only teach what, Melissa, what, 15 hours of strategy instruction? I think Shanahan said 12 to 15 hours. <laughs> yeah, like like total. Uh, per year, <laughs> per school year. <laughs> uh, so, but I mean, when you're teaching them, so it's, it's really a shift in uh, mindset and a shift in instructional strategy. Um, but it does align with that research that you mentioned and, and moving to like, thinking of curriculum at the center instead of thinking it on, on the outside of the circle, right? Like if curriculum is your center and, and it's high quality materials. So we're not talking about, you know, things that are not, I, we always say all green on end reports, but we all, we know greens aren't equal. So I want to make sure we also say that too. Um, <laughs> mostly all green on end reports. Um, so high quality materials at the center and then Everything really comes and supports that around that versus I feel like in previous years, curriculum was more of an afterthought, right? Like, well, we're going to do our professional development sequence. We're going to do our um, our deep dive into strategies and what have you. And then it was like, oh, and by the way, also check out the curriculum that you're using. So mm -hmm it really is shifting and like flipping on its head, the model that we've used before. Um, and, and I helping to get everybody on that bandwagon, I think needs some strategy. Um, so Alex, I know that we've, we all know one state in particular that's doing this really, really well um, in terms of like the state DOE and, you know, LEAs really having connectedness would you be able to talk a little bit about Louisiana and how their content sure. leaders are shifting like the way this work intertwines and how they're how they made it happen? Yeah. And Louisiana is a rock star on this front. Like that's, mm -hmm. you know, undisputed. Yeah. And, and the yeah. way that they've gone about doing it has been really smart because they have done it in partnership with and not to 
educators and administrators in individual school districts and buildings. Yeah. And that that's a really smart way, one, to build buy-in, but two, to get mm-hmm. some of that practical from the front lines knowledge of what actually will work with kids and what will resonate with teachers as they're they're developing their instructional plans and, and lessons. So when Louisiana started their their quest down this path, they brought together educators from different districts to be kind of teacher leaders that would help them review and uh, find the highest quality curriculum. And then once uh, Louisiana's teachers helped elevate those uh, high quality instructional materials for the Department of Education, the Department of Education then was able to reduce the barriers that existed for districts to adopt those materials, either by subsidizing the cost or reducing regulatory barriers for districts to adopt high quality instructional materials. But it was really done in partnership with teachers, which is why it was able to take root so quickly in a lot of districts in Louisiana and help them to then extend that effort to other areas. So Louisiana has an assessment pilot going on right now that is tied to high quality curriculum. And so you've got districts that are- No, I'm so excited. Are you so excited? It's really encouraging work. And (laughs) I'm excited for for what it might uh, kind of show other states can be done uh, because, you know, they're developing these Mm -hmm. content-driven assessments that are tied to the curricula that districts are implementing and, and, you know, instructing on with their students. And the, the teachers are finding- that when they have these assessments that are directly tied to the content they're teaching, it helps them better understand how to deliver content to their students in a way that will ensure that they are able to understand it and show that they know it and that they have learned it. Uh, But it also is giving them really rich data on how to better serve individual students as well. So again, it gets to be a win-win once you have this foundation of a high-quality curriculum that you not only are able to... um, bring adoption of high-quality instruction materials to different districts when you have teachers leading it, but then you're also able to extend and bring other facets of of what's going on in school buildings to be connected to that curriculum, like assessments, like professional development. But again, it's all because of having a high-quality curriculum at the foundation that educators in Louisiana are being able to do this work. I also think of that from the student's lens and like, can you imagine being a student and at the end of the year getting that state assessment where you might actually feel confident of like, oh yeah, like I know this from my class, we've done this Mm -hmm. versus like, here's this random (laughs) story about some topic that you've never heard about. And like the, I'm sure their confidence just dwindles of like, I don't, I have no idea what this is. So (laughs) I mean, we've all heard about the baseball study and it's just extending that concept of test kids on what you've taught them, not, you know, some. (laughs) Which can you uh, imagine doing this to adults, Alex? Like adults would lose their mind if you tried to test an adult on something. We didn't learn this. Like, you know what? It's so counterintuitive. (laughs) Sorry, I interrupted you. No, no, it, it, it's totally counterintuitive, but that, that's been part of the challenge of, of having, uh, particularly in ELA and reading assessments, yep. it's really challenging to have, uh, quote unquote, unbiased passages that don't in some way advantage students that have a wider uh, 
set of background knowledge that they're able to draw upon. But if you're able to adjust and adapt your assessments to focus on the content knowledge you know is being taught in your classrooms, you're able to have a more equitable assessment and, and get a better understanding of what students are actually learning in your classrooms. But again, it's all dependent on knowing the what that is being taught in your classrooms before you can uh, align assessments to that what. Right. And if Absolutely. every district is using something different, then that's impossible to do, right? Some might be high quality, some might be teacher made, some might exactly. be who knows what. <laughs> then, Yeah. I think, you know, I, and I don't think the message is every district in every state should adopt the same curriculum. I think the message is we need to all use high quality materials. And within those high quality materials, there are common threads of knowledge. So, you know, funds of knowledge that students are attaining as they're walking through those materials. So, we can say, you know, by the end of second grade, students should have funds of knowledge about X, Y, and Z based on these high quality materials. And, and it, you know, it could be a set. Um, to that end, I was, um, I was sometimes tell stories about my daughter on this podcast. And Presley is uh, just finishing third grade in the pandemic. So she didn't have testing this year. But I said to her, hey, you know, next year, you're going to have to take a test and it, and the test is going to look similar to what she did in school the other day. And um, her first response was like, well, that makes me really nervous. Why are they not going to test me on things that I've learned? We didn't read anything about this, this, and this. And, you know, I don't have a good answer for her as, as a parent or even as an educator, you know, I, and I just think it does just that, that small conversation I had with her, Melissa, you're right. From the student perspective, how much more would students a feel more comfortable, but b also feel more inclined to to learn and work harder if they knew that it was all connected and and they weren't going to be surprised about the topics. And I, I just think we're we're doing students and if we're here for students, we're doing them a disservice by prioritizing an assessment because we think it's the right thing to do rather than doing what makes sense. And honestly, I'm hopeful that Louisiana can kind of. Um, bring some research to the table to support this so that we all can kind of shift in that direction. Yeah. I'm curious what you think though. (laughs) I'm in a a hundred percent agreement with your point that not every school has to have the same curriculum uh, within a state or even within a district um, in order to have some sort of alignment on what students should be taught and then developing assessments that can then support that. And I I think we already have a great example of how that can be done at the high school level when you look at AP courses. They're in 70% of high schools across the U.S. And I doubt if you went to an AP U.S. history classroom in Baltimore and an AP U.S. history classroom here in Louisville, the curriculum probably looks a little different, and it might be radically different uh, on like what text they're using or how the teachers approach delivering the instruction. But they're all working towards the same goal of learning the same concepts, the same historical uh, benchmarks, and they're all assessed on a common assessment with the understanding of here's what we want the students to learn in this time period. Here are the kinds of, of knowledge we want them to be able to demonstrate, you know, with document-based questions and essays and multiple choice questions. 
why can't we take that same concept and apply it to other parts of the K-12 grade span? And so I actually wrote a piece earlier this year as part of our Pandemic to Progress series at Bellwether, where I, I call for exactly that, of having more AP-like consortia that are setting content standards for either a, a grade span or uh, a, a particular subject matter, and then develop assessments that are aligned to it, and then allow for innovation in curriculum and at the classroom level to then focus on the actual content knowledge and getting students to learn both uh, the knowledge and the skills that we want them to acquire over the course of their time in K-12. That's really smart. I like that comparison. How did we miss your previous piece, Alex? That's the big question. (laughs) (laughs) We'll go back and read it. The great news is it's still (laughs) on the internet and you can still read it. So I'll make sure that you all get the link. We'll link it all in. We'll link it all in. No worries. Uh, I I want to, I want to, can you hear me? Sorry, I keep saying it's unstable. I want to hit home that um, I like, I, I feel like some of this is like what we're talking about is some people might make the argument and Alex, I'm curious what you hear, what you say here, but some people might make the argument and say like, well, this needs to come from the top down. Policymakers need to make this policy, right? Or state agencies need to say, this is policy. And then other people might say, well, no, school districts need to have the freedom to make these decisions on their own. So it almost needs to be like a bottom-up approach to get teachers buy-in. Um, I kind of think my personal opinion is it needs to be like side in, like we all need to be working toward the same thing together. And there's multiple strategic approaches to it. Um, But I'd love to hear what you think about it because, um, you know, you wrote in your piece that like policymakers should start by understanding their state's curricular landscape and that some state education agencies may have approved things like textbooks lists, but there's little data on which curriculum individual schools actually use, which is interesting because if you're a state agency and it's your job to kind of keep track of that information, how does that, how do you not have that information? (laughs) It's, it's a a mind boggling concept that, you know, a a state education agency, which is ostensibly overseeing K-12 education in your state doesn't know what is actually being taught in classrooms. And that's the the dirty little secret of curriculum in K-12 education right now is that frankly, the only person that knows really what's being taught in the classroom for the most part in most schools is the teacher that is running that classroom. And that's because we've devolved the uh, responsibility and burden of curriculum uh, selection and adoption in practice to individual educators. Because we're seeing, you don't have to look uh, across the news very hard to see all sorts of headlines about what is being taught in schools that are being discussed by politicians. But when you get down to it, they might not even understand what actually is being taught in schools. And so I think the baseline that we need to start with from a policymaker's perspective is focus on transparency. Don't focus on trying to mandate one type of curriculum or another. Don't focus on banning certain instructional approaches or another. Let's get a grasp on what is actually happening in classrooms. And even at a district level, you know, superintendents and school boards might not fully understand what curricula are, one, officially adopted, or two, actually being used 
in classrooms in their districts. And I think that part of it has to be those folks in leadership positions approaching this from a position of humility and saying, we would like to understand better what our children are learning and, and what we're setting as the standards for, for them in terms of the curricula we expect them to uh, learn and cover over the course of their time in, in our schools. And so I think it has to start from there because you can't know where you need to go if you don't know where you are right now. And that's why I say we got we have to start with transparency. But once we start to understand that and educators start to see what is actually being taught, not only, you know, across their district, but, you know, across their state or in other states, it would be fantastic, I would think, for a third grade teacher to be able to form, uh, you know, a, a, a virtual PD group with another teacher that's working off the same curriculum they are to kind of help bring to scale um, some of those professional development opportunities that might not be available to a, a school that is using a curriculum that's not being adopted by other schools in their district. Um, and I think from there, once you start to create the, the transparency around it, you can then start to have some really valuable conversations with educators and policymakers to identify, you know, which curricula are, are stronger and working better for your students and getting more schools and systems to adopt those curricula rather than having it come down as a top-down mandate. Because I don't think that that will work because at the end of the day in most classrooms, when that door is shut, it's up to that educator in terms of what they actually are going to teach. And I think if we're going to change that um, dynamic of all the responsibility of uh, selecting and adopting and implementing and even creating instructional materials, if we get some of that burden off of individual educators and focus more on school-wide adoption implementation of high-quality curriculum, it will generate from the bottom up. But I think we need to start with transparency to help um, educators and policymakers alike better understand the, the challenge that we have before us. I think that's just such a great point. Um, I know that you, in your article, you say something like, uh, often districts just let, <laughs> you know, we let people choose because it's just like hands off. We don't have to get into the argument of what people want to teach or what parents might say about what's in there. So it's easier to just like hands off. Um, but everything you just said reminds me too of in Baltimore, um, you know, we've had wit and wisdom for a couple of years, but we've had foundations in K2 for I don't even know, Lori. <laughs> a Lots long of time. years, yeah. But it's gone um, in these like waves. <laughs> Lots of years. <laughs> maybe five, five yeah, years, you can, I'm going to say. Yeah. Sorry, Melissa. <laughs> we, we, we lagged um, on the internet and I, I don't, I didn't mean to interrupt you. I think five years. <laughs> <laughs> I was just going to say, you know, we, we go through this like, well, we think teachers are using it now or we don't think teachers are really using it, right? We go through these like what we think's happening. But um, I would say even now, like we don't, quite know exactly what's happening because what Alex said, right? They close the door, they do what they think is best for their students. And mm -hmm. <laughs> we don't quite know exactly what's happening. And we also know there's like, there's some things missing in foundations, right? And so there, it would really help us to be more transparent and honest of like, what's working, what's not, how do we make it better for everybody instead of this like, push to like, let's like do it. <laughs> mm -hmm. And then, you know, people like push against that and just say, no, I'm not doing it <laughs> and do what they want. Yeah. And I think part of getting to that point of transparency that I, I talked about earlier, isn't just about understanding like what schools have officially adopted. 
as their curriculum, but also hearing from educators what the real yeah. curriculum actually is that they are actually right. using in their classrooms. And so one of the things that I, I think states could do uh, that some states already do is survey your teachers, ask them, are they <laughs> using their, their district's adopted yeah. curriculum? And, you know, Kentucky has a statewide survey of educators. We could easily add a question on there to get a sense from educators. Are, are you being supported with a high quality curriculum that is uh, officially adopted in your school? And then maybe a follow-up question. If not, what's missing? Because there's a lot that policymakers probably should hear, but they're not able to hear because it's really hard for them to get into a classroom and understand what's going on across their their state or their district because there are so many different challenges that that could be um, revealed. Uh, It just wouldn't be practical for them to go school to school, classroom to classroom. But we can learn a lot from surveys. And I think that's something that we're underutilizing on the 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 question of what is actually being taught in our classrooms. Yeah. And I'd also love to know the percentage of teachers who feel like they've received adequate PD on Mm -hmm. the use of that, you know, high quality material uh, curriculum. And then also the percentage who feel like they're, they, they use that curriculum more than creating their own stuff still. Um, Because that, you know, I think there's, obviously this is a a massive shift in education. And um, if we could kind of get a gauge on, like, for example, like you said, Melissa, like, okay, so, you know, teachers who are using foundations, how, what's the percentage that you're being teaching it with fidelity to the program? And then why, why are you shifting away? Right? Like, what is it that's making you shift away? Where do you need to supplement? Where, why do you feel that way? And, and if teachers can articulate, really clearly, you know, why, um, then I think that that only can be supportive of leaders providing additional support and, but teachers need to be able to trust too, right. That that's the purpose of it. Mm -hmm. And like you said, that transparency needs to be there. Um, I think that that's so critical, that transparency piece that you mentioned, Alex. Yeah. And it gets back to that data point that I mentioned earlier, that the average teacher is spending more than 12 hours a week searching for or creating supplementary <sighs> materials. Yeah, right. Like there's clearly a need there. And so yeah. it just seems on like- top of, I want to say on more, top of the 40, <laughs> on top of the 40, they're working, yes. right? At least, yeah. at least 40. At least. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. And I'm not saying that number should be zero. Of course, teachers are going to have to adapt materials to, to meet specific needs that their students have. But it certainly ought to be less than 12 hours per week. And mm-hmm. I think yeah. if we were able to have more coherency and transparency around the curricula that are being used in schools, uh, a fourth grade teacher who is trying to adapt a particular lesson to an English language stu- learner student, you know, that wheel doesn't need to be reinvented in every single fourth grade classroom with English language learner students that are using that same curriculum. Uh, but right now, right. teachers are left to their own devices to be able to, to bridge that gap on their own. And it doesn't have to be that way. And that's why you see right now, you know, the, the numbers are staggering, the number of teachers that are searching on Google or Pinterest or Teachers Pay Teachers. Like we're talking 90 plus percent of teachers do this. They're looking for these supplementary materials to meet the specific needs of their students. But, you know, but those that's not something are that not needs, high quality. Yeah, they're, they're, they're not. And like there's there's a lot of data and research to show that, you know, the the, the quality level there is is pretty questionable. And, you know, expecting every teacher to be an expert on the creation of instructional materials 
at scale, all 3 million teachers plus in the United States, it's just an unreasonable expectation. And designing and uh, developing really high quality instructional materials is a really, really tough skill. And it's not something that we can expect 3 million plus teachers to be able to do at a high level on their own while also doing their job of teaching their students. And if we had more coherence around implementing high quality curriculum in schools, I feel like we would be able to significantly reduce that burden for teachers on sourcing materials that could supplement the the lessons that they're teaching freeing them up for more time to spend with their students, making connections and helping students overcome the barriers they're facing rather than spending 12 plus hours a week searching for or creating those supplementary materials. Great. Alex, I'm wondering about, um, Alex. <laughs> <laughs> I'm wondering about your thoughts on the role of higher education. I think when I you know, my undergrad, grad, even right now I'm in an admin certification course. And I would say I am being sold that I should be creating my materials. And that's, that's my job. Um, and I think that I think I'm giving you what I think before I ask, <laughs> I'm telling you, asking for your opinion. But I think that like, that's all, that's a disconnect for teachers when they come out of their programs. And then if they have high quality materials or like, wait, what do I do with this? Because I was just told my job is to create but now I'm given something where I don't have that same freedom to create what I want. What are your thoughts? Yeah, it, 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 it gets back to a metaphor that I mentioned in the piece uh, from Robert Pondicio that, you know, we don't expect doctors to go to the lab every night and develop the compounds for the medicines they're going to prescribe to their patients. We don't expect a carpenter to go into the forest every morning to chop down a tree <laughs> and convert that into two by fours. Uh, in order to to frame up a house. Why do we expect teachers to have to create from scratch instructional materials that they then have to turn around either later that morning or uh, the next week and <laughs> effectively instruct their students with the materials they've they've started from scratch mm -hmm. with? Like it it's crazy to expect that of three million plus educators across the country. And to get back to your point around higher education, where they fit into all of this. Higher ed, you know, for all the challenges we have in K-12 education and, and moving forward on high-quality instructional materials and, and coherent curricula, and how for how slow-moving K-12 districts are, higher education is even slower to move and adapt for the most mm -hmm. part. And I think it's it's a huge challenge to try and overcome because, as I mentioned earlier, most teacher preparation programs serve a, a very discrete set of districts that they serve as talent pipelines for. And so as, as we get districts that are moving more and more towards adopting high quality instructional materials, thoughtful, coherent curriculum, if we were then able to then have those districts work with the teacher preparation programs that serve as their main talent pipelines to expose pre-service educators to not only the, the content that is being delivered in their classrooms, but to understand instructional strategies that can work well with that specific content, to better understand the concepts and the, the content knowledge that is part of those curricula. Because, you know, I, I know that when I was in the classroom, there were things I had to teach that I wasn't an expert on as a fifth grade teacher. Like there are concepts that I hadn't revisited since I was the fifth grader. And you know, there, there are lots of teachers in that position where they might have to teach something that they're not 
you know, fully 100% confident that they fully understand themselves. Yeah. And that's sure. not a knock against them. There's just a lot of really in-depth, uh, complex content that educators have to, to teach and deliver to students. And the sooner that we can make early career teachers experts in the content that they're going to be delivering to students, I think it sets everyone up for success, not only the educators, but in particular the students. Because how, how much more support could we be giving to first year and early career educators if we knew to a, a pretty strong degree the kinds of curriculum that they were going to be interacting with in the districts that they're most likely going to be applying for jobs in? It would be a game changer yeah. because they could then enter that classroom on day one and feel a lot more confident than, than uh, a, a, an educator that was stepping into the classroom day one of, of year one of their career and feeling completely overwhelmed. I mean, they're still going to be overwhelmed. Let's be very clear about that. It's, it's, it's a tough <laughs> experience to go through. Uh, I don't think anybody would, would expect that to change. But the, the coherence and confidence that you can have in your instruction with a, a curriculum that you know well and that you've maybe been reading about or studying for four years before you entered that classroom. Yeah. It, it would make a world of yeah. difference for the students that they serve. And in particular, it would have a huge, huge effect on equity in schools that have, you know, disproportionate shares of early career educators, which we know are the schools that serve our highest needs students. So like, again, this all comes back to the idea of like, Having high quality curriculum isn't just a good idea because it can help schools have a more coherent uh, approach to instruction, but it's also a massive lever for equity that we are not fully um, taking advantage of at this point in time. And particularly after the year that we've had, it seems yeah. <laughs> like a perfect opportunity to do things right moving forward. Yes. Yeah. I, um, I feel like too... Uh, what you didn't mention was assessments and mm. the teachers creating their own assessments. So if, you know, to kind of align all of this, like if teachers were sitting in, you know, if teachers were engaging with the curriculum with the teachers from the school where they were or school district, where they're heading into to apply for a job where they're going to be teaching and, you know, working with students there we talked earlier about the students feeling more confident on that assessment, right? The state assessment, if they knew the content, it's, I think it's a very similar concept. Like think about the confidence you'd have walking into an interview, a school building, a, um, an observation, right? Your first year teaching, that was the most stressful thing ever to <laughs> be observed. Um, and, and think about your confidence level because you've already been in the professional development sessions. You understand the curriculum and, and what could be more valuable than understanding and being able to support your students with the curriculum that you know all about, <laughs> you know, and, and I think too, like, right, we could make arguments for like, well, what if somebody goes to this district or that one and they're using different curricula? Again, in high quality materials, I've noticed the topics do tend to overlap. There are some overlays yeah. and topics for, for good reason, right? And I was thinking that, Lori, like I, I taught EL for a year before learning about Wit and Wisdom when we adopted it as a district. And knowing EL deeply helped me to just knowing like the structure was similar. Like, you know, there's a lot of similarities. I was able to like, you can transfer that knowledge versus coming in with nothing. And right. I imagine like, you know, imagine if 
if you know foundations really deeply because you learned it in college, but then you get I don't know, 95%, but still, you know, a phonics program very deeply. And now you just need to see right. how's this one different from what I knew versus, okay, I got to learn this whole program in a week before I start teaching. <laughs> yeah. 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 I, you know, I, I was thinking, Alex, as you were talking, like, and, and you said that um, higher ed is like kind of slow motion <laughs> um, a little bit. <laughs> we, we agree. Um, and as, as, <laughs> As people who also have uh, what I think, Melissa, we I think I said I had seven years of uh, <laughs> education experience post post right. uh, post bachelor education. <laughs> um, but I think just because it took me so long to get my master's. But um, still, <laughs> like that's a long time to spend in school while you're teaching and to be receiving conflicting information <laughs> to what the research says and you've discovered now. Um, yeah, I think the other, you know, slow-mo motion um, entity would be state departments of education in some states. So I I think I'm speaking from um, living in Maryland and feeling as though, you know, when I search on our state DOE page, um, I don't really find a lot of information that is supportive of um, you know, using ed reports is very clear about the stance on the science of reading and um, how we're addressing that in our schools. So I'm curious, Alex, since we have you as a fantastic expert, and we just talked about Louisiana as a state who's really, you know, forging the way, um, what would you, how would you go about um, enforcing change in, in DOEs that are a little bit behind the times? I'm going to, I'm going to say I'm asking selfishly. <laughs> I I think one thing that uh, State Departments of Ed can do to start moving in the right direction here is better understand what their role actually is. Like folks outside of education might think that all the schools in the state ultimately report to the State Department of Education. That's not the case. State Departments of Ed kind of sit not on top of, but like within an ecosystem of districts and schools and educators and teacher preparation programs. And they don't have direct control over all of them, but they can do a lot to influence them. And so what, what I think State Departments of Ed could do if, if they want to support higher quality curriculum in their schools is understand that their role here is not to mandate, but to, to motivate and uh, yeah. elevate what's happening in their schools already. Because the, the way that you're going to get more widespread adoption of high-quality instructional materials and coherent curricula in your schools is not going to be led by any commissioner. It's going to be led by the teachers in your state who are motivated and want to see what they know works and is working well for their students being adopted more in other schools. And mm -hmm. so I, I see State Departments of Ed as most effective when they're serving as a convener of educators and of districts and of administrators to help them actually, one, problem solve around common issues of practice or administration, 
but also to elevate what's working and to help other districts that may be a little further behind or schools that are a little further behind in the process than they are to see the path forward and see how it's working with students that look like their students in districts that look like their districts and schools that look like their schools. And I think once SDEs adopt that mindset of, okay, we're not pushing or pulling schools along here. We want to get everyone moving in this direction. So let's use our position as uh, both a, a spotlight and a convener to highlight those practices that we know are working well, highlight the curricula that we know are working well for students and educators, but also then to help educators and administrators work together across district lines, across school buildings to expand the use of high quality instructional materials and coherent curriculum. I think that's the role SDEs need to play. And those that are, are stuck in a more compliance-based mindset that, you know, we've got the regs that we need to make sure are followed to the T, and that's what we're going to do. Like, that's important work, but that's not the only work that SDEs can or should do. And the more that they can do to convene educators and spotlight really strong, high-quality uh, curriculum implementation that is happening in their states, the, the more quickly and more sustainably, that's important, the sustainable piece of that they'll see high quality instructional materials expand across their state. Because if it's a top-down mandate, they might be able to do it for you know, one administration or under one commissioner. But if, if there's one thing that's common in every SDE, it's churn at, at the top <laughs> to some degree or another. Like yeah. you could have an incredible, fantastic commissioner for a four-year term, and then they, they move on to another professional opportunity or they retire. And then you've got a new person with, with different priorities. And so the more you can disaggregate and distribute the responsibility and leadership of these efforts among educators and administrators and superintendents, it will make it a more sustainable effort over time. Again, it's not the state commissioners and SDEs don't have a role to play, but part of their role right. is recognizing and deferring and uh, embracing a more distributed approach to this work. And I, lo I love that. That's so smart. And it is true. There is a lot of turnover, you know, so distributing that leadership opportunity is important. I have a question and you might not know the answer to this and it, that's okay. Cause I know we didn't talk about it ahead of time, but it just popped in my head. <laughs> so thinking about a state such as Louisiana, their districts uh, per se I don't know if they're called this. Everybody calls them a little something different. <laughs> um, their parishes. districts in Louisiana. That's right. Parish. You're right. Parishes. I did work with some Louisiana folks and I was like, what is a parish? Can you explain? Um, how many parishes? Now I know there might be a ton. So maybe we just get a ballpark. Do you know how many parishes may be using high quality instructional materials Versus like, I'm going to give a, a number for Maryland because this is what my knowledge says to date that two, only two districts out of all of our districts in Maryland, here in Maryland are using high quality materials. So do we have like a comparison for a state such as Louisiana? I know that those comparison points do exist. I believe there was a study done that looked at Louisiana, Rhode Island, and maybe one other state, I want to say Massachusetts. Uh, but the, the long and short of it was that, by and large, Louisiana educators 
are adopting and implementing high-quality instructional materials at much higher rates than other mm-hmm. states, uh, including the states that were in, in that particular study. Um, For sure. Again, I don't remember the study off the top of my head, but I, it, it makes a difference having um, you know, adoption of high-quality instructional materials serve as a priority for your state department of education and the work that Louisiana has done has translated to the educators in the field and in, in surveys of teachers that ask them, you know, are you using high quality instructional materials? Are you covering grade level content with your students a- across several of these dimensions that get at is, is it actually affecting instructional change in the classroom? The answer is a resounding yes in Louisiana. And this shows it can be done. And so I think it's incumbent upon other states to to look at what Louisiana has done. I know Rhode Island has done some great work, too. Um, they're not quite at, at uh, the kind of penetration rate that Louisiana is right now, at least in that study that I, I was referencing earlier. But states can do this. And so the question is not like, can it be done? But how could it be done thoughtfully in your state? And I think that's the question leadership and state departments of education ought to be asking. And, you know, frankly district level leadership and school level leadership and educators ought to be asking of their state department of education. Cause that, that's really what will get this ball rolling is if the demand is coming from administrators, superintendents and educators. Yeah. State departments of education, sure. they listen to the folks that are talking to them and they, they talk a lot to folks who are in districts and in schools. And so the, the, the more that this is elevated as, as something that schools want districts want, teachers want, the more it will become a priority for these states. So I think there's there's something for, for everyone involved in K-12 education in some capacity to start getting folks all rowing in the same direction. So Great. curious, Alex, you know, right now, because of the pandemic, we're getting a lot of federal money, some state money. I'm not really sure where it's coming from. All I hear on my end is like, we're getting a lot of money. We got to figure out what to do with it in these year or two because, you know, because of the pandemic and because students are now coming in behind. What do we do? I'm just wondering, like, from your perspective of, I don't know, where you sit, any thoughts on like, what what does this look like <laughs> in the in the next couple of years with just Lots of funding being thrown around. <laughs> so s- schools and districts are going to be trying a lot of new strategies to try and address the the litany of challenges that they're facing post pandemic, and, and you know they're seeing gaps between their students wider than ever before in terms of of where their their knowledge level and, and skills levels are at when they're going to return to the classroom in person this fall, and so we're, we're seeing some kind of practice-focused innovations already servicing. TNTP had a report that came out called uh, Accelerate, Don't Remediate. And the idea being, uh, <laughs> you know, don't start kids off where you know that they left off in, in their instructional modules and try to go just a little bit faster. But instead, start with grade-level content. And as you identify gaps in students' knowledge, you intervene and address that. And it, it, in the, the data that they showed, it appears to be more effective than that remediation approach I described earlier. But here's the catch. They only focused that approach uh, or tested that approach using math, which is a lot more connected to Mm -hmm. content knowledge and a lot easier for educators to assess and address specific uh, skill or knowledge deficits that students may have. 
if I'm having trouble adding fractions, it might be that I'd, I missed how to find the lowest common denominator. And that's something that an educator, to a relative degree, will have an easier time uh, identifying and then addressing than a ELA teacher or a social studies teacher might have in understanding what concepts, what knowledge a student missed acquiring over not only the past year, but over their entire educational career to date. And, yeah. and the reason for that is, is because if you don't have that foundation of a common high quality curriculum, it's really hard, particularly in non-math subject areas, to identify <laughs> the gaps in students' knowledge, skills, and abilities that they should have developed mm-hmm. um, before this point in time. And so I, I think it gets back to having a solid foundation of a well-thought-out, coherent curriculum supported with high-quality instructional materials and aligned professional development gives you a baseline to at least start to identify where students' specific knowledge gaps or skill gaps might be so that you can effectively address them. You may have the most terrific uh, strategies to intervene with students, uh, to provide students with tutoring, but if the educators delivering those interventions or tutoring students aren't able to effectively identify what students have missed or, or, or where those, those gaps in knowledge are, it's really tough and, and maybe near impossible for them to effectively deliver instruction, remediation, or tutoring to those students. So I think we're going to yeah. see a lot of innovation on, on that more tactical side uh, with, with the funding that's uh, being delivered to districts uh, post-pandemic. But absent the foundation of a really solid, coherent curriculum. It's going to, I, I worry that a lot of those interventions won't show a lot of results for kids. Um, so that, that's yeah, how I, I think. Like, be, <laughs> yeah, I agree. I think it's going to be a lot of uh, the hamster wheel of what we've already been doing up to this point. That's kind of how I feel like it's not, I'm just curious how, and I, I don't mean for you to answer this question. Like I'm just curious in general, how the, interventions that like are going to occur because we know they're going to occur will look different from interventions in the past that have already occurred because if we don't center them around high quality materials and Alex you shared some examples like um in our in our pre-call you shared you know building knowledge and providing content then practicing skills with content and you you just mentioned building knowledge we can't identify gaps in the knowledge and assumed vocabulary that goes with that knowledge unless we know what was missed in mm-hmm. we can't do that unless we have a coherent approach right um you also shared that students could build fluency within context of knowledge building texts absolutely <laughs> fluency is a great place um we recently talked with tim rosinski and uh he i mean he's like the fluency guru so he talks a lot about fluency and its role in um and knowledge building and just in general reading development. So there are ways to intervene that make sense, but really the the core of it is you need to have those high quality materials at the center. And then again, everything, you know, surrounds that professional development intervention, uh, obviously tier one instructional um, schedules, routines, every structures, everything that goes uh, around that. Um, but it, I think it's immensely difficult to do if, if you don't have the right materials, you know, um, I, I just, I don't know how to do it 
without that because it doesn't seem to work in the past. It it's really tough. It's really tough. And to be very clear, like I don't think a district is going to be able to if they were to say tomorrow everything that we we're saying on this podcast is a brilliant idea. We are going to adopt a, a high quality <laughs> curriculum. We're going to buy it tomorrow and then use that <laughs> to to focus our work for the the 21-22 school year. Like it's not going to go great no matter what, even if they make that decision now. But I think if districts don't start moving in that direction, particularly in districts that have a financial cushion right now, thanks to the the relief funding that is coming their way, if they're not focusing on getting that foundation built as they're working to address these other needs, it's going to put them further and further behind. And like, I, I recognize it's, it's going to be hard work, no matter what, like, I don't I don't envy district administrators or leadership yeah. <laughs> or school administrators and leadership right now. They've got a tough road to hoe ahead of them. Yeah. But if they aren't working with that solid curriculum as their their foundation over the long term, it's going to be harder and harder for them and more importantly for their students to get to a better place you know, it, af, after the year we've had and the, the challenges that we're going to have in the years to come. So like all this is to say, like it, there are going to be a lot of failures over the next year, two years, three years for educators, for school leaders, for students. But I feel like there, there's more of a safety net that will help these folks uh, over the long term if it if they're working off of or, or starting to implement a high quality curriculum as they're they're working through these challenges right now than if they were to just kind of stay with the the, the old approach of let schools do their own thing curriculum wise and we'll provide you know a one to one technology support for them or we'll provide money for after school tutoring you know That's right. th- that that might work but i i feel like there'll be a higher higher degree of or higher probability of success if if they're working off of a foundation or starting to build a foundation of high quality coherent curriculum in their schools. Yeah, Alex, I realized that Melissa and I have defined, you know, consistently on this podcast high quality materials and I even uh defined it earlier. But what is your definition of high quality instructional materials? <laughs> <laughs> So it it, it 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 can be one of those you know it when you see it kind of situations, but but for me, when I think about high quality instructional materials and coherent curriculum, there's a clear understanding among educators, students, and parents and families of what a child should be expected to learn over the course of a year, what the the pacing of that that instruction should look like, and that the the rigor of of materials aligns with what grade level expectations are set in in their state's standards. And that's another challenging point that I think is often overlooked in a lot of circles is that, you know, when someone just says, oh, we're just going to teach the standards like that, that's a really, really big challenge (laughs) to get right. Um, And I, I feel like without the translation thoughtfully of your state's, uh, grade level standards to materials that are aligned to a a thoughtful scope and sequence that are building uh, an explicit set of content knowledge within your students. It's really difficult to, to build a, a thoughtful kind of curriculum, you know, 
at a school level or in a classroom level that will effectively address those standards. There's there's a really great book that uh, was recently published by Morgan Polikoff. He's a professor at USC, done a lot of research on curriculum. Uh, it's called Beyond Standards, and it 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 looks into that that challenge. And um, I, I think it's something that everyone that's probably listening to this podcast would be interested in reading, particularly yeah. YouTube. Oh, yeah. uh, so I, I, I would just uh, give that book a plug because I think um, the challenge of translating standards into high quality curriculum is massive. And I think that's why we need to have more high quality instructional materials that align to state standards, because making that translation is almost impossible to do yes. at scale for <laughs> schools and for educators. And, and Morgan does a great job in that book of, of discussing those those challenges and, and uh, talking about solutions to potentially address it. And surprise, surprise, like having strong curriculum efforts that are led by State Department of Education is part of what he recommends. Of course. I'm already adding it to my cart. I know. <laughs> I know. See, I want, I was curious, Alex, if you were going to do like a, uh, a like the high quality curriculum should have this and should not be that. Or, you know, um, I always think about uh, what was it like back in the day in like the late nineties, early two thousands, it was, um, do you remember that book? Eat this, not that. Yeah. <laughs> My dad was like a real health nut. So it was always like, eat this, not that. <laughs> and, um, I, I remember like going through that book and being like, yeah, there are like wrong things to eat. And I kind of feel like we're at that point in education now. Like I want to be like, learn this, not that read this, not that write this. Not that because there are, I mean, I think we're at a point where we can say like the science of reading movement has clearly defined that there are some things that are, you know, the right things to intake for educational nutrients. And then there are some things that are not the things to uh, intake for, for any kind of helpfulness. So uh, in terms of our, our minds. So um, I like, I like how you defined that. And um, I feel like, I feel like we're at the point where Alex could, do you want to comment on that? I feel like. Oh yeah. Uh, I, I was going to say like, <laughs> as you raise the eat this, not that kind of uh, analogy to this, I, I would say one thing that you would see in a, a high quality curriculum that you wouldn't see in a lower quality curriculum is an emphasis on knowledge building and consuming whole texts mm -hmm. uh, or, or covering whole texts and not just working off of, you know, random fictional stories and leveled readers and snippets of text from here or there. But I think it, engaging in a thoughtful development of uh, content knowledge that is sequenced across grade levels and across subject areas is something that ought to be the backbone, backbone of, ev of every high quality uh, curriculum that, that schools uh, hopefully will move towards. But I, I think that, that that's probably a, a non-negotiable for me if I was to assess something as like, is this a high quality curriculum or not? But like, I think building an explicit set of content knowledge in students is absolutely foundational because it, I mean, there, there, there are so many benefits to it, both in terms of literacy instruction and getting students to develop um, not only fluency and accuracy in, in their reading, but like, it's also just more fun for kids to learn about actual stuff and not yes. just strategies of, of <laughs> you know, how to connect a, a text to, to self, text to world, um, you know, all, all that can be valuable. But if it's not built on a foundation of, of knowledge that, that kids are building, like they're not going to come home from school and say, I learned how to make better text to self connections today. They'll be excited <laughs> to say, I, I learned about, you know, this Greek myth, or I learned about mm -hmm. Rosie the Riveter. Um, you know, you could go on and on, but like, the, mm -hmm. the, 
actual content knowledge is what gets kids motivated and will serve them well in the long run if we're able to build stronger foundations of background knowledge and more shared foundations of background knowledge. I feel like we'll have not only beneficial effects for students down the road as they develop into their their careers or academic pursuits, but it'll also help our our democracy out if if folks have a a lot more overlap in in the shared background knowledge and understanding that they have uh, not only of the world, but of one another. Yeah. I just saw a tweet that was similar to what you were talking about, Alex. It was like, like, and also don't assume that students, especially if students are, you know, reading below grade level, don't assume what they're going to be into, right? Like this content knowledge, sometimes like I always tell my middle ages story. We had one of the modules in Wit and Wisdom in seventh grade is about the middle ages. And I was just like, oh God, the kids are going to hate it. But they didn't, right? And I think- It's that, awesome. Yeah. They love oh, yeah. it. You know, and it's like, we, we make these assumptions that, oh, well, they're not going to like that because of where they're from. They're from Baltimore. They're not, they're not going to connect with it. But they're, so they love learning content. <laughs> Yeah. Kids are curious and and the more that you we can expand their worlds by exposing yep. them to to new topics, new subject areas, new new uh areas and domains of knowledge, the the more literate they're going to become, the the more well-rounded individuals they'll become. And so we can't mm-hmm. just defer to, you know, letting students stick to texts that are are, you know, aligned to what they're already interested in. Like there's yeah. there's so much that we can do for kids to help, you know, them fulfill their full potential and it starts with, you know, opening the door to the the world of knowledge by exposing them to a whole bunch of different uh, concepts and content knowledge. I feel like I was very fortunate growing up because my grandmother was a librarian. I spent a lot of times in libraries going up and down different aisles and and just pulling out books and, you know, absorbing all this different uh, content that was, that was in the library. And like, I feel like we can do a more thoughtful job of giving students exposure to that kind of experience. Uh, One, spend more time in libraries. They're great. Uh, but two, like building out curriculum that thoughtfully uh, yeah. uh, builds content knowledge from a wide range of, of areas, disciplines, experiences, parts of the globe into what students learn throughout their K-12 experience. I, I think that's that's a no-brainer in terms of what um, we should be looking for in high-quality curriculum. Yeah. Yeah. And, and just to kind of like hit on that point, right, from a real life example of um, the fact that students would get to read books all throughout the year in high quality instructional material curricula and not um, not fabricated books, right? Not leveled books, not books that were written for a specific um, reading strategy, but authentic texts that they will engage in for their entire life, but to build knowledge on a topic. Um, Presley did she was a rock star this year. She did school and then she also did wit and wisdom with me. Um, and she um, learned about the sea in wit and wisdom. She learned about space and she was reading books from day one. Um, and in school, in her actual classroom where they don't have high quality materials, um, the middle of May was the first time that any student in that class got to pick up a book and read a book. And um, they're still reading it and they're almost done it, thankfully. But um, it's very contrived, right? Like they're, they're reading James and the giant peach and it's a big deal quote that they get to read this book. And she looked at me and said, well, I've been reading books all year. Why are they excited to read just one book in school? And the, it's very contrived in like the sentence stems and the answers that they're asked 
to, you know, respond to. Um, but, you know, she, she is able at nine to identify and say, I have learned, I mean, she said to me the other day, I've learned so much about space. I would have never read about space if I hadn't, you know, been doing wit and wisdom. Mm -hmm. And for her to be able to realize that, like, that's not a topic that she's naturally inclined to learn about, but it's so, again, so interesting. And, and you're, you're building all of this content knowledge on space and you could go on for the next year and still be learning new things about it. Absolutely. And I think, you know, absent SEA leadership on the the topic of transparency around curriculum, I've always thought that a really interesting project that, that, uh, an enterprising parent or educator or journalist could undertake in their city would just be to go and ask at a couple different schools, like what books are your fifth graders expected to read during the year? Mm-hmm. Do that at your, your public schools. If you have uh, private schools, ask them. If you have magnet schools or charter schools, like ask them too. Uh, and maybe do that for a couple different grade levels. What, what uh, whole books are your 10th grade English classes reading? Yeah. I think it would be fascinating for, parents, educators, administrators, and uh, other leaders to see what are we saying we're expecting of our kids and what are we, what knowledge are we exposing our kids to? And why do we have different expectations at one school versus another? And just by having that transparency around, you know, what full books are we asking kids to read? I, I would venture to guess that we would see some really interesting things out, out of that kind of data and generate some really interesting conversations. Yeah. What if you had a school that kind of was scrambling and like, I don't know if we ask kids to read a full book. Yeah. Does that happen? I, I, I would hope not. Well, yes. I mean, Presley did does. not, did not in second grade, they did not read a full book. In first grade, they did not read a full book. In kindergarten, they did not read a full book. I can say 100% as a parent, they didn't read a full book in school because the curriculum didn't ask them to. And, and how, how empowering could that a project like that be for parents who might not fully understand the, the ins and outs of, of what a curriculum is supposed to be? Mm-hmm. But that's, that's right. something that a, a parent, a, a grandmother, or just a, a concerned taxpayer could understand as to like why yeah. students at a school might not read a whole book throughout the, the, the school year. Or, you know, if, if they're reading a book that is, you know, you've got a 10th grader reading a 10th grade class, that's reading James, the giant peach. Like this is an absurd example. <laughs> and you've got another one reading Tolstoy. Uh, why are we doing that in our two schools? Like that's an extreme yeah. example, yeah. but it's, you would, it's not you would that, find things that crazy that though. Could, <laughs> it, yeah. But you could find things that would allow people to thoughtfully engage in conversations around the expectations that we're setting in our classrooms based on the curriculum that we are setting. I think the more that we can focus on having those conversations and figuring out what what should a high quality curriculum look like in our schools, in our district, in our city, like yeah. those can be some really valuable conversations that I think could have some pretty positive effects, even again, absent state leadership on this topic. For sure. Right. Yeah. And I just I think again, to hit home the point, we everything you just said is grounded in equity and inequity. I mean, there's, it's access and opportunity and you elevated that so, so eloquently. So thank you. <laughs> well, I appreciate that. Well, and it, and it's because it has to be in this moment, yes. like of, of all, all the times that, that we've, you know, been operating in, in K-12 education policy, we haven't been at a moment like this ever before where the, the range of disparities has grown so great. The impact 
on students and families has been so widespread that you know this is a moment that calls for really thoughtful approaches to addressing these issues of equity in our schools. And I think that you can't do that unless you're focusing on the content and the structure of what you're at, we are actually expecting kids to learn. Because if we don't have an understanding of what that should look like, we're not going to be able to address those those gaps and those inequities effectively. Yes. I think we're at the point where you give some advice to our listeners, even though I think um, you've done a great job giving lots of advice. Yeah, all throughout a ton this of podcast. advice. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I, um, I, I'm happy to give a, a little more just to kind of like tie up all of those yes, threads perfect. that uh, have been dispersed throughout this conversation. I, I think the, the one question that folks ought to ask is like, given the position they have, what can they do to move the ball forward on getting more high quality curriculum into schools and in front of students? And so that might look different for someone working or leading a state education agency that it would for a principal or a teacher or a parent. But we, we've discussed a couple different ways they can do that, either by improving the transparency of the curriculum in their state or in their district, um, finding you know for educators more opportunities to connect and collaborate with other educators that are using the same curriculum they are, be it in their district, their state, or across the country. And I think for, for parents, just getting a better sense of like what are the expectations being set in your school's uh, around curriculum, like what what texts are your kids expected to read? And I think having some basic questions like that for parents um, can really help them engage in this issue without feeling intimidated around all the the edgy jargon that that gets thrown around, yeah. Uh, yeah. particularly in conversations around curriculum. So I think yeah. no matter what, anyone concerned about this topic can do something. And I think they just need to to reflect a little bit about given the the positions that they have and where they're situated. Where can they best address this challenge? And I think, you know, we've, we've touched, again, on several different ways to do that. But I think that's the question folks should be asking of themselves. Um, and then also, I recommended Morgan's book. It's great. Um, Beyond Standards. Um, give it a read. I, I know Melissa's excited about that in particular because she, <laughs> you always talk about, like, struggling with specific standard-based instruction. So maybe... Um, Alex, we'll have to have a little unpacking with Morgan at some point about the book. <laughs> Do you know? I'm sure him? he'd be happy to. <laughs> uh, not, uh, just just through Twitter. Just through Twitter. Okay. <laughs> but he seems like a really nice guy. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. That's a great recommendation. Thank you. You're welcome. Absolutely. And thank you so much for this conversation today. This has been fantastic. Yeah. Thank you. I, yeah. Knew, we could, I knew we would have a long conversation based on... Uh, how we could just chat forever about this topic. Um, I feel like we also need to create an infographic that's like a read this, not that together. We all need to collaborate on that. <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to make like our homework. Alex, Alex is going to be roped yeah. in now for the next one. <laughs> what did I get myself into here? I know. <laughs> well, thank you so much. We are yes, super grateful you. to have you know, that you've given so much time. Thank you. <laughs> well, Have no, again, day, happy to, uh, we to join thank you, Alex. the conversation. Yeah, yeah thank, thank you. you. <laughs> Bye. Bye.